All right. Uh, I will get started just for so that Dave doesn't sweat in an hour. Um, I didn't introduce myself the last time I taught in the fall, um, but my name is Kevin DeYoung. I think I've met most of you, if not all of you. Uh, I'm a deacon. I help. I don't help. I lead a home group with my wife um, Tuesday nights, and I've been helping teach Sunday school for a few years. And then um, just a little preview, there's going to be a multiple of us teaching in the next series starting in March. So you'll look forward to not just mostly Dave and sometimes me, but I think there's like six of us. So um, let me pray and we'll get started. Father God, we we thank you for the morning, Lord. The snow comes and, and we look forward to spring, but we know that you plan out every season. You plan out every moment. God, you plan out the moment for all of us to be here this morning. May my words speak your truth. May we um, just encourage and edify one another with all responses and bless the worship this morning in your house to glorify and honor you. In your name we pray, honor. Uh, amen. So we're wrapping up the kind of cultural Christian Sunday school series. The f back in 2023, we talked a lot about who cultural Christians are and what um, you might find. And then Dave, for four weeks in January, I think the beginning of February too, talked about the gospel, the call and response, what the gospel is and what we should, how we should be responding and why we should be responding by the power of the Spirit. And that's really good to talk about, right? Because if we're talking about cultural Christians who don't know the real gospel, do we know the real gospel? And I think we always need a refresher because in our sinful nature, we're always going astray. It's good that we as a church don't lose sight of this so we don't become lukewarm like the church in Laodicea, like Dave mentioned, getting spit out of God's mouth. Um, so today, now I'm going to shift gears back to talking about cultural Christianity. And I'm going to talk about some of the problems that drive cultural Christianity and the importance of why we need to evangelize to cultural Christians and ways we might um, go about evangelizing to cultural Christians. So I start out here with this verse from Romans 1.25. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. And that's what we see in our society, in our culture today, right? We see the church, mainstream, watering down the gospel, exchanging the truth of God for a lie. And what does this lead to? Um, this leads to basically churches compromising for the culture. So what do you guys think? How does how do you feel like this verse in Romans Romans one twenty five fits with uh, cultural Christianity? Any any ideas or thoughts? I feel like it's a gospel that's always uh, changing. Um, you know, as culture changes, so it changes. So maybe two hundred years ago, it might have looked pretty parallel to American culture, but 
as culture has changed and values have changed, it allows new things to become priority that the gospel doesn't actually prioritize. Yeah. Yeah, as, as the culture has changed, the teaching of the church has changed. We're changing what we worship and what we call truth. Any other thoughts? The crowd has shifted to the left. I'm just kidding. Um, yeah, we have this, this culture that is changing, and then the church tries to compromise to it, which leads to uh, a term called theological liberalism. And this is sad, right? We see churches trying to transform just to kind of satisfy their hearers. Theological liberalism, it's a term coined, uh, and Sarah talks about it in his book, but it comes from J. Gresham Machen. Uh, he wrote the book Christianity and Liberalism way back in 1923. Uh, just listen to the, how uh, Ligonier introduces the book when they're on their website when they sell it. It says, how will the Christian faith survive in a skeptical world? Modernists in the early 20th century considered the solution to be clear. Thinking the church needed to be rescued from irrelevance, they laid aside unpopular teachings from the Bible and recast Christianity simply as a way of life. Resisting these attempts, J. Gresham Machen gave an unbending response. He says that Christian doctrine isn't the problem. Unbelief of the culture is. And so we talked about cultural Christianity being a different religion in, in many sense. That's basically what he's calling uh, theological liberalism. And 1923, that's 100 years ago. We think, oh, society's gotten way worse. And it has, sure, to a degree, but this was all already starting 100 years ago. And he, I think this is a good definition from Machen about what theological liberalism is teaching. He says, according to Christian belief, man exists for the sake of God, right? You have what is the chief end of man to glorify God and then enjoy him forever. And according to liberal church, in practice, if not in theory, God exists for the sake of man. This is not surprising to us. We see people, oh, God, well, we've heard the phrase, he's my homeboy. Um, he's there when I need him. <clears throat> but this is not surprising. If we turn to Second uh, Timothy 4, 3 through 4, Paul is warning us. 2,000 years ago that this was going to happen. He says, For the time will come and people will not tolerate sound doctrine, but according to, their own doc according to their own desires will multiply teachers for themselves because they have an itch to hear what they want to hear. They will turn away from hearing the truth and will turn aside to myths. And we see that. We see that throughout our time now. Paul was t uh, talking to the Jews, or, or the church at the time. He's talking to Timothy, going to be a leader in the church. And he's talking about the Jews bringing back the law, or Gnostics saying that you need to have a personal knowledge from God. Those things were happening at that time. But it's, it's creeped in every century, every time since 
Paul wrote this, and even including the Reformation, the Roman Church was making it what they wanted to hear. And we had a Reformation that happens in the Eastern Orthodox Church. That's happening in today's mainline church. People are taking the gospel and making it what they want to hear and not what the truth is. And how does this creep in? How does this happen? How does this creep into the church? How do how did we get to where we are? Ben was talking about America started, the United States started a little more culturally Christian, although probably always wasn't true Christians who, who live this way. There was deists and things like that. Um, how did the church that was probably more solid two hundred years ago? How did we get here? What do you guys think? How did this start? All religions lead to heaven. We started to promote that. What does that go against? Yeah. If you don't focus on Christ, it's not going to lead to heaven. It's going to lead to eternal punishment. Yeah. It, it, I think you're right on, Jack, is that we're not promoting the Bible we're promoting, like Machen, or, or no, like Paul said, returning to myths. And so this next point I have, the Bible, is it historical or mythical? How do we treat the Bible? If we don't treat the Bible as God's word, we're not going to have people who consider it truth. We're not going to have people who live out this truth. What are some different views you guys have heard maybe from cultural Christians you know, family members, other religions. What are some views, wrong views you've heard about the Bible? Hopeful wisdom. That it's not inherent. So maybe there are some mistakes. There's mistakes in it. You open that door up that people start to kind of question everything. Yeah. There's applicable yeah, it was a book for those 2,000 years ago or 3,000 years ago. and then, Yeah. Bible needs to change for us, right? Were you going to say something, Dave? Yeah, they say written by man. Yeah, it's written by man. God didn't do this. It's not the word of God, right? Yeah, we take the Bible too literally. Right, we as in a, a gospel-centered church. Um, and Sarah talks about in the uh, chapter thirteen of the book about a youth event he was at in a church, and the youth leader basically was saying Adam and Eve were a myth, and he kind of laughed at them like, "Are you serious? Are you saying these weren't historical people?" But then he found out in his church, most people held that view. The Bible was just a bunch of myths. Um, and you hear this today. I mean, I've heard of people taking the Bible and putting it like on the same level of Homer's Iliad or um, even modern day stuff. I've heard of churches preaching during Advent, um, basing their preaching off the Christmas carol or uh, playing songs from Frozen, right? It's If the Bible is just a myth, why not just throw everything else in there? And that's what people are hearing from their church. It's sad. Machen says, Christ died, that is history. 
which you have to believe it's history, right? You have to believe these things happen, which there's a lot of proof, yet we want to be skeptical because we hate God in our hearts, according to Romans. Uh, Christ died for our sins, that is doctrine. Without these two elements joined in absolutely indissoluble union, there is no Christianity. So you have to believe these things are real from Genesis to, to Revelation. These things are coming. And you also have to believe that they have to apply to your life. What Jesus said, unless you come to me for forgiveness of sins, you will not have eternal life. But we aren't taking the Bible seriously in our culture. And, and I'm saying we, I mean, I say we sometimes as our gospel-centered church, but also we as a culture. And I think if we check our own hearts, there's also a we of, we need to take the Bible more seriously in our own lives every day. And I, I just want us not to make it an us versus them the whole time either here. So always be thinking, where do I put myself in, in the shoes of the cultural Christians still? And I'm going to talk about how that can help us relate to them. Um, so what, what comes then? If we don't take the Bible seriously, what kind of things do you guys see happening? Or what do you think would happen? in mainline churches. We make God small. The road to heaven gets wider. You'll have to come up with some other reason to be going to church if it's not because you're learning about actual reality. It might be because you're going for entertainment or Yeah, that's that's great. It's, it's, why do you go to church? Oh, we like the the band. Mm, we leave for the sermon. start to serve ourselves instead of our creator. Did you have something? Um, I feel like it can, it can wade into prioritizing politics or prioritizing mm. uh, some particular social work. Mm. When you reach out to the homeless of our church, mm -hmm. we do actually do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You have a politician come and speak that day instead of preaching or you're promoting, yeah, even if it's a good thing, right? It, it's, it's, we're going to have a serve the homeless day instead of go to church. And that's a good thing in and of itself, but that's not what God commands first and foremost. And we wouldn't know that unless we know the Bible. Anyone else? I see a hand over on the left, or I guess you're right. Yeah, Dave. Uh, it's interesting to think, too, like we're innovative uh, mm -hmm. by nature. Yeah. Yeah, we want to innovate and and make our own name unless we go to the word and there's ways you can innovate to still promote the truth. Um, you're right, if we're not looking at the truth, it's like 
how can we find a way to live forever? How can we find a way to, I mean, there's, I was listening to a podcast over a week ago, and there's actually a man who spends millions of dollars into um, every type of surgery and health thing, and he's 40, but he truly believes his organs and everything are like still like he's 18, and his goal is not to age ever. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's what we turn into. Oh, let's innovate to live forever, to build our towers, and to promote ourselves. We turn, ultimately turn to another gospel. I'm going to read Galatians 1, 6 through 12, which, where Paul talks about turning to another gospel. And in this, again, he's, he's um, talking to the church in Galatians. about their certain issues. But he says, I'm amazed that you are so quickly turning away from him who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another gospel, but there are some who are troubling you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, a curse be on him. As we have said before, I now say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, a curse be on him. For I am now trying to persuade people or God, or am I striving to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel preached by me is not of human origin. For I did not receive it from a human source, and I was not taught it but it came by a revelation of Jesus Christ. If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. Let that be sobering to preachers today. And even myself standing up here, I need God's word. So we turn to another gospel. And Sarah talks about this in the book, The Episcopal Church in 2003 had a, a bishop, someone was named a bishop in New Hampshire who had left his wife and went to his homosexual partner in a, in a relationship, and they named him a bishop anyway. And then it led to a lot of churches splitting and, and joining with um, churches in Africa and South America who were more conservative. And one of the um, leaders said in a, a news article, he said, these other churches that split off, they need to learn to change with the times. And you know, what's funny is that 20 years later, we had the same thing happen with United Methodist Church just last year. Things haven't changed. The Methodist Church, most of it wanted to change with the times, and 700 churches split and joined the churches in South America and Africa. It's just a repeat of what's going on. Yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say that. I mean, it's not like that behavior is new. Changing with the times is like an iron gear because... Yeah, a bunch of Galatians get some Jews walking in and say, hey guys, we've got to follow the law, not this grace stuff. And they're like, Paul's like, nope, you're wrong. This has not changed, right? Even Israel, they're changed for the culture. They worship the idols and then a new king comes in and reforms them and they go back and... Um, there's actually a term for our kind of 
cultural state today uh, coined by <coughs> Michael Horton called Christless Christianity. And uh, he wrote a book about it, Christless Christianity. He, he has a, a teaching series on it. Interesting enough, he's a modern-day teacher at Westminster Theological Seminary, and his uh, position at the seminary is the J. Gresham Machen Professor of Theology. So he's kind of doing the work that Machen did in today's today's world, um, except there's more like him and kind of coming under him in today's technology. He's not as alone as Machen probably felt. Tim Chalice, um, in reviewing Horton's book, described uh, Christless Christianity this way. He says, it offers this kind of working theology. God created the world. Okay, that's good. Good start. God wants people to be good, mm -hmm. nice, and fair to each other, as taught in the Bible and most world religions. The central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. <clears throat> God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life, except when needed to resolve a problem. Good people go to heaven when they die. Other beliefs you might hear, and, and you can find this all over, is um, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you believe it. Of course, that could go really wrong really fast. Uh, all paths lead to salvation, right? The, so you were saying, Jack, it's like, you can follow Buddha. He'll get you there. Jesus, Muhammad. I don't know who else you could add in probably today. Um, what's that? Maroni. Maroni. <laughs> yeah. No one uh, who is sincere, like if you're just a sincere person, will be left out of the kingdom. And Sarah said, shares in his chapter about, he calls it Second Chance Sunday. His, he was a teenager and he went with his family to church and the, the pastor was saying, oh, it'd be a real shame if people miss out on this life of believing in God and they wait until heaven to believe in God. And his father went to him afterwards and said, did you mean to say that? And the pastor said, of course I did. People think <laughs> you just live, you get to heaven, and then you'll believe in God. And, and Right? Besides maybe Hitler and Stalin and whoever else, you know, Putin, Everyone else is going. We're all going to heaven. Do what makes you happy. Yeah. Well, and you see this even in um, big churches are going that way. The whole thing with Andy Stanley's church last fall, of, they held a conference. How do we better as, as it's a pastoral way. Maybe we don't preach homosexuality is a good thing, but how do we be more accepting and, and make them feel like they're not rotten sinners, even though we're all rotten sinners in need of God. Um, how do we make them feel like it's not a bad thing? Even in the Roman Catholic faith, which obviously there's a lot of conflict in their belief between what we believe, but the Pope is, is finding every which way to, in a historically more conservative religion, and this is not making conservatism the gospel, he's just catering to the culture, and, and a lot of things are going that way. Uh, and like you said, Nathan, Paul was in Galatians criticizing Judaizers, but <laughs> if he came and saw this today, he'd say, if you're trying to please man over God, then you're not serving Christ. Yeah. 
and that's wrong. And ultimately what this leads to, too, is uh, misunderstanding God's love, holiness, and wrath. It leads to a lot of evil practice. I'm going to turn to Romans 1, 18 to, uh, through 32. So we're sticking to that Romans 1 theme from the beginning. Where they exchange the truth of God for a lie. And what does this lead to? Paul says, For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and right." and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Since what can be known about God is evident among them, because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. For though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. Therefore, God delivered them over to the desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity, so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. I'm not going to keep going, but essentially it goes to they promote ungodliness. Not only do they do them, but they promote people who do them. That's what we're turning to. But it says right there, Paul is telling us the wrath of God was against this. We've talked about, Dave taught really well, there's a holiness to God. There's a set apartness. We can't go near him because he's so perfect and we are so full of sin in our basic state when we're born. We cannot approach God until Christ first approaches approaches us by the power of the Holy Spirit. We can't come near him, and yet the world says, you're good enough. God loves you just the way you are. In a sense, God loves people who bear his image, but he doesn't love them as adopted children because they're not holy. There's a separation. There was a curtain that was torn because of Christ, but if you don't come to Christ, there's still a barrier as Dave said, too, in, in, uh, beginning in January, one of those weeks, there had to be bloodshed. Sins deserve punishment. Wrath has to come. The wrath of God is good. And people say, how would you call the wrath of God a good thing? God is not mean. and He's loving. But if we really think about it, even the most people in the street, the most basic people, they would believe injustice needs to be punished. That's a good thing. It's a good thing to be wrathful against injustice. Now we need to realize that even ourselves here in this uh, gospel-centered church, we were deserving of that wrath, but then Christ comes, he renews us, he gives us a new spirit by the power of the Holy Spirit, and we can come to God, and therefore, by Christ's holiness, we can approach God's holiness, but... You have churches telling people that there's no even need for a cross. Richard Niebuhr, who I guess wasn't actually a very conservative person, was writing about even still this American cultural Christianity back in 1937. He said, A God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment. 
through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. And you hear people like, oh, God didn't need to put Christ on the cross. It just happened that way and he used it. Okay, that gets very dangerous because then you're trusting in a God who just forgives willy-nilly. He's not holy. He's not perfect. What did you say? He's not sovereign. Yeah, he didn't, he didn't plan for Christ to go to the cross, but he used it. Oh, no, this is happening. Ah, plan B. That's dangerous. If God's not in control. Um, and there's no one to live a perfect life and give us that perfection, then we stand before God judged. Because that, that's what the Bible says. And so when all of these things are being preached to cultural Christianity, this is why we need to go evangelize the people in our neighborhood, right? The people that are going to churches that are not preaching the gospel. So kind of switching gears a little bit now, figuring, figuring out what kind of people are in the main line, uh, main line Protestants, but even, um, you know, there's Roman Catholics you could throw in there. Uh, let's go through a little list here. So, Okay, we're shifting from the teaching. We're shifting to characteristics of these <coughs> cultural Christians. We'll put practice. And then what do we have? We have tradition and theology. So what do these, what, do, what is a cultural Christian? That was probably some of us, right? What do we practice as a cultural Christian? Being good. Good deeds for the sake of themselves, right? Yeah, you might go to church. How often do you go to church? CEO, okay. Online, yeah, they've moved online. It's more comfortable. And that was tempting, right? During COVID, it was like, oh, this is nice. It was nice for the first week, and then you're like, I really miss my people. <laughs> How, um, Yeah, and Sarah kind of puts, I don't need to list them all. He says, they might believe that our church is extreme. Uh, they admire the Bible, but it's not authoritative. Authoritative. They're committed to loving others, but like Jack said, but they, um, they conform to the world. That's what I'm going to put on there. Conform to world. What is their tradition? I think you could put CEO. Meaning Christmas, Easter only. They only go on Christmas and Easter. I don't like the acronym either, but that's the acronym. <laughs> what other traditions do they hold? Yeah. 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 Recommit. Sacraments have a flexible meaning to them. Yeah. 
or like they throw in some of the Catholic doctrine into their beliefs. I've heard this from like Protestant cultural Christians. Like, oh, I had the sacraments. I'm blessed today. It's like, Um, but sacrament misunderstanding. Um, don't have enough room. Yes. Yeah. Some liberal Protestant churches will still hold to liturgy and they'll still follow a format, but they'll have new liturgies and new robes that mm. have the LGBTQ colors. Sure. Whatever political statement they want to make, um, and they'll have new homilies for new, um, you know, new modern thoughts that are coming. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I went to Pacific Lutheran University, and their main chapel it's actually pretty conservative preaching when I was there. Four years later, they got a, a woman pastor wearing rainbow robe, preaching to the or praying to the earth. <laughs> okay. Um, don't know where to go. What's their theology? What do they believe about God? What do they believe about Jesus? What was that? He wasn't enough. He was just a good person, right? Jesus. Good guy. Prophet. Of course, I guess some way even um, question the history, the historical accuracy of Jesus. For our benefit. So to have faith, do you need the gospel, right? No. What would Jesus say today? Yeah, go ahead, Kelly. Yeah. It's that belief in, so the other side of things, it's not just like, oh, I'm free to do what I want, but I'm not free to do what I want. God doesn't love me today because I sinned 10 times. And that almost brings in some of that Catholic legalism, um, which our culture today lumps Catholics in with Protestants. I mean, there was a whole thing 20, 30 years ago about we're all together. And, and so then you get that intermixing of um Hey, you're not following all these ten steps. You're not going to heaven. You're gonna say something. I was gonna say also just off what Vanessa was saying that the authority uh, for what truth is, maybe you could call it, would be of the culture, mm -hmm. and that's even kind of trickled down to the individual now. Everyone has their own truth now. 
Yeah. Yeah. Truth is relative. So you can believe, like Kelly was saying, your truth is that you have to obey everything. Or something, how, how you would even like bring the two together and say we both believe in things getting us to heaven. It doesn't make sense, right? It's, I don't want to dwell on this too long. This is the reason. These are things we have to fight against. And that's why Dave took us through four weeks of what is the gospel. Because the gospel's not God's there when you need him, or I can't live up to God's standards, so I'm not going to heaven. The gospel is you can't live up to God's standards. You weren't going to heaven. God saved you, and Christ's standards bring you there because of the power of the Holy Spirit, because of God's free gift of grace. It's kind of a redundant statement. Grace means free gift, right? So then, and Sarah put in here too, some ways to detect Christless Christianity in a sermon. So if you're attending a church, um, and he makes a good point, don't go in hypercritical, but it's always good to examine all preaching, even, even, even my talk today and Jeff's and Dave's, and it's not like we're, I'm not expecting them to have crisis Christianity, but it's good to have this thinking, especially when you go to another church or, or you're with family. Um, so one of the points he puts, do they talk about Jesus as just a good moral example? Why is that Christless? Because that isn't what he did. Yeah. I mean, he was a good moral example. That wasn't the, that wasn't his own fault. Yeah. And if he's just that, He's not God, right? Yeah, Dave. Well, he was, he's a good moral example because he's God. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Him being God is the most important thing. Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to flip this so people aren't distracted by it. I figure that out. Yeah, right? <laughs> you can be a, a good moral example and be Buddha, I mean, questionably, but, you know, sorry, sometimes things pop in my head, I'm like, oh, that didn't really work, but, um, how about self-improvement versus commitment to Jesus? Why is preaching on self-improvement Christless Christianity? Depends on yourself. It's works-based. Sorry. There we go. Denies the need for a savior. Mm -hmm. And God doesn't call us necessarily to self-improvement. Yes, follow me. But there's so much in there about I'm going to be sanctifying you. Instead, follow me really means commit to me. Not build yourself up into a better person. Um and then by what power is the change to occur? Does the preaching talk about? So is it by Christ's power? How is preaching about, again, you guys kind of said this, but preaching about our power, Christless, self-dependent. Uh, is scripture used properly? So what ways would Christless preaching use scripture? Mm-hmm. Yeah, 
Yeah, cherry picking to fit the mood. Yeah, Kelly. Yeah, it puts us in the main character of scripture. You said, Jonah, who do we need to throw out of our boat? And it's easy to laugh at, and not even just to pick on people, but to think like, oh man, like, who do I need to get out of my life to make my life better? And that's, <laughs> I'm sure, I mean, I'm sure I feel that way daily, but. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, or is, and finally, is Jesus or the listener the subject? Well, and using scripture properly, I don't want to negate that. Um, just go away from that. Scripture should be used to point to Christ, like opposite of what Kelly was saying. Pointing to us, or are we pointing to God? We're pointing to the God of the universe, the sovereign creator, who condescended to take us to him. Or are we pointing scripture to ourselves? So then, yeah, is Jesus or the listener the subject? If you find it's all about you know, I know you're suffering, but God has this for you, or you can have a million dollars, or what have you. You know, prosperity gospel obviously feels really wrong because it's about monetary gain, but there's other preaching that I've heard that it's not prosperity materially, but God loves you, whatever you're going through, and he will always make things feel better. That's still prosperity. It's not about the monetary gain, but it's still prosperity, and God does love his image bearers. He loves his own chosen people differently. And then he does want to make us prosper spiritually. But there's so many ways that it's going to come about, often through suffering. So what, are, what do you find their beliefs to be like? We talked a lot through that many weeks. Uh, how do you find Christless Christianity in sermons? You go to these churches, you know of these churches. This is, again, not to pick on those churches, but the reality is it's out there, and we need to be discerning. I always hear, you know, don't be judgmental. We need to be discerning, and we need to judge. But how does Jesus tell us to judge? We're going to start with ourselves. And uh, at the end of the chapter 13, and Sarah puts these questions, and I want to just... We don't have to talk through them necessarily. We don't want to think about them. Because if you're going to approach anyone for evangelism and you're not checking your own heart, you're not going to do it well. You're going to do it arrogantly. So let's ask ourselves, how often do you exchange the truth of God for a lie? I would say anytime we sin, we are exchanging the truth of God for a lie. So we all probably did that this morning. We're probably doing that somewhat right now. We'll do that this afternoon. By the grace of Christ, we're forgiven. we got to understand, we were probably cultural Christians. We can easily become cultural Christian, Christians even for a moment. Um, do you ever feel the urge to apologize for the Bible or soften its message? I work as a 
physical therapist and God will come up and it's so easy to just like, oh yeah, I go to church. Let's move on. <laughs> Almost like, oh, I don't want to talk about this. I'm sorry I talked about it, you know, and it's like, God says if you're ashamed of him, he'll be ashamed of you. And yet we do that. Uh, do you fully believe in the inerrancy of Scripture and God's power to ensure that his word will not return void? We talked about this uh, in home group after Jeff preached on evangelism. And... Uh, that's a hard one to, to think, right? You you come to even a family member and you tell them the gospel and for the 10th time, they're just like, that's nice that you believe that. It's like, okay, I got nowhere with that, right? But the scripture doesn't return void and sometimes it's working on our own heart. And so we should trust that God is going to do what he says he will do. But do we fully believe that? And if we don't, we need to pray about that. We'll talk about that. Uh, do you view God's love, holiness, and wrath biblically? And I think it's true to say none of us will ever completely understand it biblically because there's always things to learn about God. And God is love. He is holy. And he will have wrath on sin. And I just... I know every time I study the Bible, I learn more about that. My point there being is not to say, oh, throw my hands up. I don't understand God fully. It's are we seeking to understand God every single day? And the truth is, if we think we have a full understanding of God, we think we got it all down, we're going to go to a cultural Christian dependent on our own knowledge, and we're going to sin in that. So we need to check our own hearts first. Now we want to evangelize to cultural Christians. Some important things to consider. What do you guys think? How should we go about evangelizing to cultural Christians? Just give some thoughts out there. Yeah. Prayer. Prayer. Marissa and I were going over this last night. I just gave you the answer. That's what you, you just read it. <laughs> Prayer is huge. Mm. Yeah, you also just read the notes. No, you're right. <laughs> Loving hard questions, and Dave did talk about that. Yeah, you got to go in and say, hey, what do you think about the Bible? Or what do you mean by that? And, and want to know their thoughts, not... Just looking to pounce on them. Understanding their perspective. Yeah. Yeah. You were going to say, Nathan? Oh, we just went from the other minute ago, too, just humility. Mm. You know, we're, we're beggars, knowing other beggars where to find bread, you know? So, yeah. Um, be with humility and love and not too much guilt. Yeah. Beggars showing beggars where to find bread, right? That reminds me of like the woman at the well. Hey, go tell the town about this. And, and <laughs> what was her status in her community? Pretty low. And 
she probably didn't come in like, guys, I know all the answers now. She probably came in, I know you guys think low of me, but look what I found. Um, number one, I had to start out with preach the word. And this starts, yes, from the pulpit. We as a church need to preach the word, so that's a call to our preachers, our Sunday school teachers. But it's also a call to us people to be students of the word and to uh, exhort and convict our preachers to continue to preach the word They and, and pray for them. Um, preaching the word is important so we don't become, like we read in 2 Timothy 4, where we're catering to their itching ears. We've got to preach the word of God. And that's also necessary because if you don't use the word of God, Scripture's pretty clear, they're not going to know the gospel, right? Um, I put a typo in there. It says Romans 1, but I meant Romans 10. So I'm going to read Romans 10, 14 through 17, because I always think that's a pretty uh, convicting and powerful text. where Paul talks about preaching the word. He says, how then can they call on him they have not believed in? How can they believe without hearing about him? And how can they hear without a preacher? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news, but not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? And then he says, for, so faith comes from what is heard, and what is heard comes through the message about Christ. So, yes, as a church, we teach and believe that God calls people, but he uses the means of our sharing the gospel to do so. So we need to preach God's word from our pulpits, but also from our mouths every day. And the it has an effect, effect about it. I like this from the Westminster Larger Catechism 155. It says, how is the word made effectual to salvation? It says, the spirit of God makes the reading, but especially the preaching of the word, an effectual means of enlightening, convincing, and humbling sinners, of driving them out of themselves and drawing them unto Christ, of conforming them to his image and subduing them to his will of strengthening them against temptations and corruptions, of building them up in grace and establishing their hearts in holiness and comfort through faith unto salvation. That's pretty powerful, right? The word of God is conforming people. And it's like, should we give such power to just these words? Well, God says it's his word. And then that verse in Hebrews, it says it's like a double-edged sword. It pierces to the heart. It splits bone and marrow. Not quite literally, but it will pierce your heart if God chooses to let it work, to make it work, rather. Uh, had this quote from Thabiti uh, Anya Buile. He's a, a preacher in DC. He says, preaching that points everyone and everything to Christ, insisting upon his lordship and our submission, our repentance and faith, tends to separate wheat from chaff and make the unconverted uncomfortable. So if we are seeking God's word, we're exhorting our preachers to preach the word, and they are preaching the word, and people who walk through our door, they will be pierced to the heart. 
Now, whether they come back or not, that's not up to us. It's God. But that's where it needs to start, is true preaching of the word. Thankfully, by God's grace and grace alone, I believe we're doing that as a church. But if we, if we at all see it stopping, we need to exhort our preachers to do so, which means we have to be in God's word as well. Um, secondly, like Dave said, pray for God to work. Why do we need to pray for God to work? Because this is such a difficult task. Like we said, we come into it with all sorts of sin. We come into it with our own arrogance, our own pride, wanting to just verbally beat people over the side of the head and make them believe, and, and it doesn't really work that way. Um, and also those people have hardened hearts. We can't go in spiritually and change the heart of stone to a heart of flesh. We need God to do that. First Timothy 2, 1 through 6 says, For you yourselves know, brothers and sisters, that our visit with you is not without result. On the contrary, after we had previously suffered and were treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know, we are emboldened by our God to speak the gospel of God to you in spite of great op opposition. For our exhortation didn't come from error and purity, or an intent to deceive instead, and we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. So we speak not to please people, but rather God who examines our hearts. We never used flattering speech, as you know, or had greedy motives. God is our witness, and we didn't seek glory from people, either from you or from others. So they came to, um, sorry, I used the wrong verse. I was like, this doesn't sound right. Here we go, First Timothy 2, 1. It says, for all then I urge that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for everyone. Although that Thessalonians was, was also good. Uh, this is more about the prayers. I urge that petitions and prayers and intercessions be made for everyone. Praying for all peoples. And he talks about kings and governors and cultural Christians alike. He talks about the people in the, in the culture surrounding where Timothy was being a pastor. <coughs> So he says this so that hearts would be changed. Do we come earnestly enough that we are humble, yet seeking humble enough to seek God's help? Leon Morris says this, when Christians evangelize, they are not engaging in some harmless and pleasant pastime. I mean, that's why we're fearful about it, right? They are engaging in a fearful struggle, the issues of which are eternal. We're talking about bringing these people on the fringes from their path, their wide path, to hell. And by the Spirit, the Spirit bringing them to the narrow path to heaven. This is eternal consequences. And to think that we don't need God is arrogant. We need to be continually praying for God's work. Finally, some, some practical ways <clears throat> Ellie talked about it. Um, come with some good probing questions. We need to bring the invitation to people. Praying is good, and God can work that way. Preaching is great, but if we never invite them, like Romans 10 says, what's going to happen? They're just going to sit there and think they're on their merry way, but they're not. And Sarah says, and this is from chapter 15 in his book, he says, you've got to refuse to be in denial. 
How many of us have friends or family that think, well, they go to church and they've heard scripture and they're probably good to go? We can make it for ourselves we can, and we can kind of justify their, their salvation, right? We need to stop being in denial about even those closest to us. If they're not showing and bearing the fruit of the gospel, we need to go and preach it to them. We can't deny it anymore. Probably shouldn't deny it about ourselves either. We need to search our own hearts. We also need to have gospel clarity. We need to know what the God, word of God says. Again, we need to know about his love, holiness, and wrath. Um, biblical literacy is so important. I've heard it said like, oh, I don't want to study the Bible to this depth because I'm not a seminary student. And it's like, do you love God? Do you love God to search the depths? and the riches of his grace. If you do, and you search it out, he will give you, by his word, the wisdom to bring to people. Because if you don't bring them the truth, you're bringing them your own watered-down gospel. What good is that? And then we need to be bold to speak the truth in love. So, again, we need to come to them and tell them, yes, you are a dirty, rotten sinner. Yes, I was, and often still am, without the grace of Christ. So there's boldness, there's humility, there's love. It's like, I don't want you to stay on this path. We need to realize that that's the most loving thing we can do. It might sound loving to let them go on their path, but it's actually very much more loving to tell them about God and what he's done through Jesus, because we're keeping... By doing so, the Spirit may keep them from eternal damnation. This quote from the end of chapter 13 and in Sarah's book I thought was great. Inviting friends in these churches to come to your gospel preaching church is not an act of sheep swapping. Don't feel guilty about it. But rather, it's evangelism. Any last thoughts? Yeah, it's tough stuff. Evangelism is tough. As Jeff said, don't focus on your own heart, your own thoughts. Focus on the creator of the universe and let that be your joy and motivation to evangelize. Let's pray. Father God, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring your word. Lord, you have called us to this task we fail so often. Often we are like Peter and we want to say, I don't know him. And that's it's before Peter even had some restoration from Christ. And Lord, help us to instead be the Peter who was willing to die upside down. God, it's so hard. And we live in a culture that makes it even harder. And yet you have given us unending resources and a gospel-centered church to know who you are. Help that to embolden us by your spirit to bring your word to the lost, even those that may be sitting by us today. In your name we pray. Amen.